If you've been married for any length of time, you probably realize how much of an impact your words can have on your spouse and how much of an impact their words can have on you. We're looking through the lens of passion this week when we're talking about love, sex, and the Bible, but our words are an important part of contributing to the passion in our relationships. We're going to unpack that and more today. Stay tuned. Do you sometimes doubt if you're truly hearing God's voice or if it's really your own? Or have you been in a season where it feels like He's completely silent? Have you been praying for a way to learn how to hear His voice more clearly? Hey friends, I'm Rachel, host of the Hearing Jesus Podcast. If you are ready to grow in your faith and to confidently step into your identity in Christ, then join me as we dig deep into God's Word so you can learn to live out your faith in your everyday life. The Hearing Jesus Podcast is so excited to partner with Compassion International. We believe in Compassion's mission to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. Sponsors, when they sponsor a child, have the opportunity to see firsthand the impact that you're making through letters and updates that you receive from your sponsored child. It's not just changing the lives of children, it's changing entire families, whole communities, always through the local church and always in Jesus' name. When you choose to sponsor a child, you ensure access to quality education, medical checkups, healthy food, clean water, and most importantly, the love of Jesus. Delivered through a church in their community because of a generous, caring sponsor like you. And you can speak life, love, and hope to your sponsored child through personal letters that you'll exchange. I hope you'll join me in sponsoring a child through compassion today. All you have to do is pull out your phone and text Hearing Jesus to 83393. You'll get a text back with a picture of a child who is waiting for a sponsor and a link to sponsor that child. You can also go to compassion.com forward slash hearing Jesus to choose a boy or girl to sponsor. When you sponsor, we'll also send you a copy of She Hears Learning to listen to Jesus, my book, as a token of our thanks for investing in the life of a child. Thank you for joining me and sponsoring a child through Compassion today. Hey friends, welcome back to the Hearing Jesus Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Grohl. We are continuing our series on love, sex, and the Bible as we walk through the book of Song of Solomon. If you're just joining us, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the last handful of episodes so you get a better idea of where we're at in the series. And again, on our Patreon page, we have daily journaling prompts because I'm a firm believer that journaling helps you get the information from your head into your heart as we meditate on God's word. Our Patreon starts at $5 a month. You get added free episodes, journaling prompts, and much, much more. You can check that out. The link is in our show notes. And so I'm reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible today, and we're in Song of Solomon chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And this is Solomon starting to express his love for his bride. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, which have come up from their watering place, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. 
Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is beautiful. Your temples are like slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with layers of stones, on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lilies. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish on you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. You shall come with me from Lebanon. You shall come down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have enchanted my heart, my sister, my bride. You have enchanted my heart with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much sweeter is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than that of all kinds of balsam oils. Your lips drip honey, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A locked garden is my sister, my bride. A locked spring, a sealed fountain. Your branches are an orchard of pomegranates with delicious fruits henna with nard plants nard and saffron spice reed and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense myrrh and aloes along with all the finest balsam oils you are a garden spring a well of fresh water the flowing streams from lebanon and then now the bride is speaking Awake, north wind, and come, wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. May its balsam oils flow. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its delicious fruits. And then I'm actually going to read verse 1 of chapter 5 because it goes with this stanza. It says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and drink deeply, lovers. So from the onset, we can very clearly see, as with the rest of the book, that this is love language, it's love poetry. And the way that ancient poetry was written was a little bit different than what you and I might recognize as love poetry. But it starts and it ends with this pattern where he says, you are fair, my darling, you are fair. Or he's saying, you are beautiful, my darling, you're beautiful. So it begins and ends with this declaration of her beauty. And so this is actually one of, actually it's the first one, of four examples in the Song of Solomon of a wasp, W-A-S-F. And that is a genre of poetry that is part of a traditional Syrian wedding ceremony. So in that time frame, this was really common for love poetry to be done in this form. And so what that basically meant was this kind of genre would be a description of the, the beloved or the sweetheart by his or her lover, and it would move in a linear way from the head to the feet or vice versa. And so it would be a description that talks about their bodily features and it would compare them to various things within nature, the flora, the fauna, the animals, you know, all of the things that you would see in nature. And that's what we see here. And it sometimes included the senses. So it wasn't just what they saw. It was what they felt. It's what they smelled. It's what they tasted. It's not always easy for us as modern readers to understand that, especially because some of the things that they're describing are also foreign to us. And you have to remember, one of the things that I think is really important for us to remember is even though scripture was written for us, it was not originally written to us. It was written to this ancient people group. And so in their context, this kind of language made perfect sense. Now, if you start talking to your spouse or your beloved in the same way, they're going to probably look at you all sorts of sideways. But this was really common 
common in the ancient Near East with their love poetry specifically. And so we see at the beginning of this passage, this reference to the veil, and that would have been a reference to the wedding veil. And so for women at the time, they would wear these wedding veils until the marriage was consummated. So during the entire portion of their wedding ceremony, it would only be removed once they were inside the bridal chamber. And what was interesting is they would go inside the bridal chamber, they would consummate the wedding, and then they would come back out. And the wedding guests would still be there. And the actual wedding guests would only see the bride's face after she came out of the chamber. And interestingly enough, sometimes this is still part of modern Jewish weddings even now. And so he goes on and he starts talking about the mountains in verse one. They're in a place called Gilead. And where Gilead is, is it's a really hilly region. Um, it's Transjordanian. So that means that they're in the middle of this mountain range. And that region to the south and the east of the Sea of Galilee has these mountains. And so think about this in terms of what is he actually describing. Imagine with your mind's eye what he's presenting. He's presenting this picture of... Well, a couple different things. He's talking about the mountains, but what happens inside the mountains is there's animals that live there. And he's describing this picture of black goats, a, a herd, a flock of black goats. And as they would start walking down the mountainside, they would come as a flock. And so as they're kind of sauntering down the hillside, they would almost look like a ripple or a wave. And what he's saying is, is the sight of her hair reminds him of that beautiful sight of these goats coming down the mountainside. Now you or I might not equate somebody saying that we look like goats <laughs> to a standard of beauty, but remember this was an agrarian society. These were shepherds and farmers. And even if he was a king, he would have been really well aware of what those common images were within nature. And then he goes and he talks about her teeth, saying her teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep. What the heck does that mean? Well, he's, first of all, talking about the whiteness of her teeth, which is something unusual in that time frame, because remember, they don't have dental care like you or I do, but it's much more than a compliment on her teeth. He's he's talking about a flock of white lambs. Now, in contrast, he was talking about the black goats. Now he's talking about the white lambs. And he's talking about them all being in a row as they water. So they'll go down by a lake or a stream or something, and they will all kind of line up and they will drink. And as they see that kind of coming off the hillside, there would have been a reflection, a twin reflection in the water. And so it would almost look like a row of teeth formed in a smile if they were on this hillside in a lake or a body of water. And so what he's saying is that that image reminds him of her smile whenever he sees the sheep by the water. And so what we start to get is this image of not just him praising her while he's with her, but he's obsessed with her. He sees her in the everyday when he's out with the sheep and he's out with the goats. He's seeing nature remind him of his beautiful beloved. And then he talks about her lips being like scarlet thread. So again, he goes from her hair, then he's talking about her teeth, and now he's talking about her mouth. And he says they're like a slice of pomegranate. Well, pomegranate was known for being a very sweet fruit. It was, you know, not super common for commoners. It was more something that the, you know, people that had money that would eat. It was found very often in the ancient Near East 
in terms of their literature and their imagery. And it was a symbol of love and fertility and fruitfulness. And actually in the original language, when it talks about the temple, so he's talking about the temples are like a slice of pomegranate. That word for temple is actually a word that talks about the mouth or the palate. So it's not talking about the temple on the side of the head, like you and I would think he's talking about the mouth. So he's basically saying their mouth are like two halves or a slice of pomegranate. So that makes a little bit more sense when you think of it that way. And so again, we're seeing this as part of that wasp poetry where he's talking about even taste. He's, he's equating all of that as part of her beauty. Hey friends, are you loving the deep conversations, the biblical insight, and the spiritual growth content that I share on the Hearing Jesus podcast? Well, I've got some fantastic news for you. Starting at just $5 a month, you can become a member of our Patreon community and take your Hearing Jesus experience to a whole new level. When you join Patreon, you gain access to ad-free episodes, daily journaling prompts and worksheets, monthly bonus content, personalized Q&A sessions with me, giveaways, and more. As a Patreon supporter, you're not just a listener, you're a valued member of my inner circle. But that's not all. Our Patreon community is a place where you can connect with like-minded people who share your passion for spiritual growth, engage in meaningful discussions, share your thoughts, and be part of something that's truly special. Plus, we've got some awesome perks lined up for our Patreon supporters from shout outs on the podcast to exclusive merch and more. So if you're ready to dive deeper into the journey of hearing Jesus, head on over to patreon.com forward slash hearing Jesus. Your support makes a real difference, allowing us to continue bringing you inspiring content week after week. Also, a portion of any income from Patreon goes to support children through our partnership with Compassion International. Again, head to patreon.com forward slash hearing Jesus. Thank you for being a vital part of the Hearing Jesus community. Community. Together, let's learn to live out our faith in our everyday life. And then he's talking about her neck. Her neck is like the Tower of David built with layers of stone. Well, as he's moving in a line downward from her hair, he's talking about her neck and the Tower of David. The Tower of David was seen as something of beauty and significance in their culture. And on the side of the Tower of David, there was shields. And it's talking about how that reminds him of her necklace. It's also reminiscent of military imagery. And so that brings to mind ideas of might and strength and defense. And so all of this is perfectly appropriate in their culture, even though it seems to make no sense in our culture. And then it goes on and talking about her breasts are like two fawns, the twins of a gazelle. Well, gazelles, as we heard in some of the previous passages, they were a picture of grace and beauty in their culture. So again, it makes perfect sense. Now, if you called your wife a gazelle, she might have a different feeling about it. But in this culture, it was a signature of her beauty. And then in verse seven, he says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There's no blemish in you. Interesting enough, this section, this portion does not really describe necessarily what she looks like, but rather how he sees her. He's talking and comparing her beauty to the things that he sees in nature, but he's not specifically saying what actually she looks like. Because again, physical beauty and inner beauty are 
kind of two sides of the same coin. And he's talking about the beauty he sees in her, which is most likely both physical and inner beauty as an indication of where they're at in their relationship. And so to her husband, to her bridegroom, everything about this young bride is perfect. And that word flaw that's used there can also refer to morals or character. And so he's saying that she is both physically and morally pure. He's just so, so in love with her. And then again, in verse eight, it starts talking about the mountains again. It says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. And he talks about the summit of Amana, the summit of Sinir and Hermon. And so Amana is a mountain to the north of Jerusalem. Sinir and Hermon are mountains to, at the southern end of that same mountain range. And so basically what Solomon is saying is his love for her reaches to the highest and farthest areas of the kingdom. A modern way that we might say that is he might call her the woman of his dreams or an angel. He's not meaning it literally, like he's not necessarily calling her a mountain because I think you could think, oh man, he's talking about my weight or something like that. That's not what he's saying. He's literally just saying, you're the woman of my dreams. And also the thing about the, that mountain range, they're very impressive, but they are somewhat inaccessible. They were known for being very beautiful mountains, but they are full of danger because of the kind of terrain that they are. And there are actually lions and leopards that were in those mountain ranges. And so you couldn't just go for a hike up there. It was something kind of from afar. And so that's another metaphor that we're seeing where it's reflecting the fears that the woman likely has, that despite her love for this man, she's a little bit reluctant to give herself fully to him. And so he sees that in her. He sees her beauty, but he also recognizes that she remains just a little bit inaccessible. And that's appropriate at this point in the game because you have to remember a lot of these marriages at that time frame were arranged marriages. Sometimes they were arranged by the family. Sometimes it was a political issue. And so she probably has her heart guarded a little bit. And then the verse nine, it talks about, you have enchanted my heart, my sister, my bride. And we see that language, my sister, my bride. We are not talking about something nasty here. The word sister means beloved or honey or sweetheart. So it was really common in love poetry at the time in the ancient Near East. And so again, it's the modern day equivalent of calling somebody your sweetheart. So don't get gross about it. And then it goes on to talk about the locked garden. And you could probably imagine what that's talking about, but it's a metaphor for expressing this imagery that the woman was still a virgin, that they had still not consummated the marriage because again, she's still wearing the veil. So they're probably on the cusp of that. They're not quite hundred percent there. And he calls her a bride in this section, but the word there is kala, which means either engaged or recently married. And so it's a different word than the Hebrew word for wife. And so what we're likely seeing is they just completed the wedding in yesterday. We talked about that. And now they're just on the cusp of coming together physically as one. And then there's a bunch of small metaphors that are really just talking about the delight that he's anticipating, much like a meal. He's getting ready to, you know, in partake in the joy and the pleasure that comes as part of marriage. And so when it talks about the garden in verse 16, it says, may my beloved come into his garden and eat its delicious fruits. She's finally putting her, her guard down. So she's saying now my garden is his garden. And so there's an interruption of his praise with this invitation where she's finally saying, okay, let's go. I'm ready. And she's describing herself as his garden and she's inviting him in to enjoy all the delights of the garden. And that's interesting because genuine love 
is characterized in the Bible in a godly marriage by respect for each other. And as much as he's in love with her, it is a gift that is graciously given and he's respecting her timeline. He's respecting her maybe fear or anxiety or concern. He's respecting that and she sees that and then she's willing to give that over to him. It's a beautiful picture of what happens once somebody is married. And then we see awake north wind and come south wind in, in verse 16 and it goes into verse 1 of chapter 5 because that's the conclusion of this this. Uh, song or this poem that you were experiencing or were talking through but it's talking about at this point the sexual union and the man and the woman have metaphorically described him coming into the garden him eating the fruit the arousal and the passion of love and the wind that is talked about is just a way to kind of talk about the fragrances of the garden and it's really metaphorically and poetically talking about this consummation of the marriage and this is actually the midpoint of the book in terms of verses, verse one of chapter five. And it's seen as technically the high point of the book because it's when the lover finally accepts his sweetheart's invitation and he enters into this previously locked garden and they have been very faithful up until this point and he finally enjoys the delicacies of the garden. And he is accepting her gift of this commitment to him. And that's clear because he starts saying my when he talks about it. He talks about my garden. And so there's a transition from your garden, you are a garden now it's my garden and so he's talking about eating and drinking it's this invitation to not just them as a couple but also us as readers of the book to stand and understand this invitation to learn about God's order from what we see them doing and putting that into practice that idea of keeping the marriage bed pure and protecting that garden that we have that experience that we have to be only experienced within the context of marriage. And I don't know if you have picked up on this, but one of the things that we get from this passage is this reference back to the Garden of Eden. It it helps remind us of what was experienced in Eden. I mean, it talks about gardens, it talks about fruit, it talks about all this nature. And just like it was in Eden before the fall, they're naked, they're not ashamed, there is no curse, there is no sin, at least at that point in Adam and Eve's relationship, there's no sin. And so Adam said to Eve, if you remember, he said, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That is essentially the declaration of the two of them becoming one flesh. But Unlike what happened in Eden, there is no forbidden fruit in the Song of Solomons. There is no forbidden fruit at this point because they are fulfilling God's plan for relationship and they have saved themselves until marriage. And so at this point, this sensual pleasure that they're experiencing and what we experience with our spouse, it's recapturing this idea of what it was supposed to be like in Eden. And I think that's so interesting because it reminds us of part of what God did in the creation story is give us this gift of relationship between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And it's part of the order that God established at the very beginning of creation. It was part of his intention for us as humanity. And we see that this sexual relationship between a man and woman is part of God's design, just like being in love is within the context of marriage. And it's very clear from this passage that passion is part of that. It's a celebrated part of 
of marriage, but it's something that's only to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. That's how God designed it. And when you follow through on God's design, we get joy, we get celebration, we get fulfillment, we get passion. When we do it outside of God's design, that's when it brings chaos. It brings heartache and heartbreak to us. And within that, we see the groom have respect for his bride as they give themselves to one another. We can recognize that there's this idea of respect and mutual submission and giving. That's a very important part of how our relationships are supposed to function. And so I think you take any of those pieces out of the context, we're going to have an issue. And so when you insert selfishness and you remove respect, you're going to have problems because it's outside of God's order for the marriage bed. And so within God's order, we see commitment, we see respect, we see love, we see appreciation. I think one of the takeaways that I want to portray is that in this section, it shows us that there is this mutual excitement and passion and delight that can be experienced in a marriage between a man and a woman. And that is demonstrated by love, including this idea of sexual expression. It is not manipulative. It is not coercive. It's freely given and it's freely received. It is not anybody forcing somebody to do something they don't want to do or do something outside of the bounds of marriage. And so we see this beautiful relationship where both of them are respecting each other. They're valuing the needs of each other, the desires of each other, as much as they value their own needs and desires. And so there's this mutual delight and desire that each one of them have. And it brings to mind this beautiful picture of how fulfilling this relationship can be. Yes, the sexual relationship is part of it, but it also is respect and giving and appreciation and all of those other things that we see portrayed here. And I just want to mention that while, yes, we are talking all about the sexual relationship within the context of marriage, it is an obvious part of marriage. It's only one part. And so when God made women and man for each other. It was not that woman was an inferior partner to man, but he designed them to work together, to complement each other. So in a woman's strength, she complements a man's weakness. In a man's strength, he complements the woman's weakness. Together, they are a perfect picture of being created in the image of God. There are things about the woman, just like there are things about the man, that when you put them together, that is God's design for humanity. As they recognize that, as we recognize that, as we recognize that there are mutual strengths and mutual weaknesses within our relationship and we lean on each other for that, it leads us towards this path of maturity in our relationship. We have maturity in our emotions. We have maturity in our intellect. We have maturity in our spiritual lives. The primary purpose of this relationship is not sexual pleasure, even though that's a big part of it, but it's to enable men and women to function as God designed them to in relationship to each other. So given that insight, I'm going to go back and I'm going to reread this passage starting at verse one. We're in Song of Solomon chapter four, verse one, and it starts with Solomon. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, which have come up from their watering place, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is beautiful. 
Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with layers of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish on you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. You shall come with me from Lebanon. You shall come down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have enchanted my heart, my sister, my bride. You have enchanted my heart with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much sweeter is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than that of all kinds of balsam oils. Your lips drip honey, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A locked garden is my sister, my bride. A locked spring, a sealed fountain. Your branches are an orchard of pomegranates with delicious fruits, henna with nard plants, nard and saffron, spiced reed and cinnamon, with all the trees and frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all of the finest balsam oils. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. And now the bride speaks. She says, Awake, north wind, and come, wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. May its balsam oils flow. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its delicious fruits. And then chapter 5, verse 1. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and drink deeply, lovers. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this beautiful picture of not just sexual fulfillment within a relationship, but the kind of fulfillment that men and women were created to experience both in our relationships now and how you originally created man and woman within the context of the garden. God, I pray that you would help us recognize how fulfilling our relationships can be. And Lord, if there are some pain points here, Lord, would you reveal that? Would you reveal the way that perhaps we have not been respecting our spouse in a relationship or we haven't even thought about it or we haven't been laying down our own desire in order to give in to their own emotions or the things that they're experiencing? God, I pray that you would remind us even now that you've created this perfect picture of marriage for something for us to enjoy in our human relationships. God, I thank you that you are the joy giver, that you are the one that wants us to experience the fulfillment of this kind of relationship. And Lord, I pray for forgiveness for any areas that we've not been honoring to you in our sexual relationships, whether it's with our spouse or outside of our relationship with our spouse, or maybe we're not even married. God, I pray that you would help us to experience what it's like to have healing in that area, God, as we lay this part of our lives down to you, as we submit our sexual relationships, our sexual lives to you, God, I pray that you would make it clear the way forward. I thank you and I praise you for who you are and the way you reveal yourself and your plan to us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey friend, every day when I finish the podcast, I feel so confident that this is one of the things that God created me for. And my journey is not unlike yours. I had a season in my life where I was doubting God's voice. I felt insecure about the things that I thought he might be telling me to do. If you were in that place, I want you to know that I offer spiritual direction and life coaching to help you get unstuck. Maybe you're struggling with something and need an objective biblical opinion. Maybe you need some help working through something that feels a little heavy. Maybe you you feel called to write 
write or start your own podcast, or maybe you just want to learn how to hear God's voice more clearly. For me, when God started to reveal his plan for my life, I found my purpose. And part of that purpose is to help you learn how to grow in your relationship with him. My heart is to help guide you in this area so you can step confidently into the calling God has for you. If you would like to start spiritual direction or life coaching, I'm opening up space for a couple more clients. You can head to shehears.org forward slash coaching to learn more. That's shehears.org forward slash coaching. Hey friends, if this podcast helped encourage, empower, or equip you in your walk with God, I would love it if you would head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. That's the number one way you can support my show. You can also join our free Facebook community or Instagram page where I share inspirational tips, bonus content, resources, and prayer throughout the week. Hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you. Know that you are so loved. Keep going. Keep going.